0: And welcome to series two, episode seven, to the studio. We have Gala Bell on the podcast this week. Gala is a London-based multidisciplinary artist, engaging with ideas of value, taste, hierarchy, and absurd labor. Her work is the aftermath of a reaction to substance and situation. Materials and actions become metonymic, swapping roles between quotidian interactions and traditional art processes. She's a graduate of the Royal College of Art and City and Guilds Art School in London. She's been selected for exhibitions with the Victoria and Albert Museum as part of the Great Exhibition Road Festival, the London Design Festival with Mint Gallery, Kunsthalle am Hamburger Platz in Berlin, and Galerie der HBK Saar in Salzbrücken. Belle has had commissions by BBC One and Tate & Lyle for her sugar sculptures, with a piece acquired by the Tate & Lyle Museum Archive in London. She's been included in publications with Days Magazine and Art Reveal, with interviews by BBC One, Tribe, and The Royal Docs. In our chat, we cover how her early experiences on a residency in Berlin began to open up her practice, the tricky terrain of labeling and packaging yourself as a certain type of artist, her deeply personal relationship with the vast array of materials she uses, to why she champions intuition over specific imagery or ideas in her paintings. Thanks very much for listening. Here's our chat. Hello, Gala. How
1: are you doing? Hi, David. Nice to speak to you.
0: Yeah, nice to have you on. Thanks for agreeing to come on.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, how are you doing at the moment? Um, what have you been up to today, and you know, how, are you finding, how are you finding it at the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty unusual time. Um, but I've started to look more at different ways of working that are digital and online. So I've been learning how to use Blender. And for anyone who doesn't know, it, it's an incredible software that's completely free to download. Um when I first came across it, I thought it was actually something like from the 80s, like a forgotten software that just was completely redundant, but it's actually very much active. And so you can do 3D renderings on there and like design objects in 3D. So at the moment I've been trying to design a hand sanitizer wow. with this like very futuristic little silicon object for a friend of mine who's doing a competition for hand sanitizers, and it's through Bombus and pa. Um, So they put out this competition for people to design a bottle or a different like gestural ritual regarding hand sanitization. Mm. Um, and it's gonna be held possibly at the design museum with all the proceeds going to the Red Cross. Wow. So even though I'm not a designer, yeah. I thought I'd still like have a crack at it. And I'm just sort of like learning how to use the software and have a few kind of prototypes, so I think we'll just see how it goes
0: mm, yeah. from there. Yeah, great. Yeah, um, well, before we get into kind of what you're up to at the moment, I think it would be interesting for people to hear a bit about your background um, and you know when you first started to become engaged in the arts and how that came to be.
1: Yeah, so I think it's something that's always been in my life. I mean, I I do think about, you know, what kind of came before me in a sense. Family, for example, because I don't know anyone directly that was like did art exactly, like did painting or sculpture. Um, But my grandmother, she used to work in a shoe factory, um, like cutting, making shoes. Her her brother was also a welder. And like another family member was a was like a leather craftsman. So I feel like maybe that's something that I've kind of uh, drawn from. Mm. Um, and when I was a kid, I always used to do loads of like drawing and sketching. So it kind of carried on um, until, you know, when I left school, I decided to go to City and Guilds Art School. So I studied there, um, I did a BA there and then I, Took a couple of years off before going to the RCA. Mm. Um, I did. I started like curating a couple of shows in a few like underground sort of spaces, They're not officially galleries. Mm. Um, but I created a few shows. Um, also worked with a group of guys called Other, and we set up like a little platform that was selling prints uh, for artists that weren't actually able to make their own work. Um, so it was two of my friends that started this and I joined them at a later point. So we curated a lot of like little exhibitions in some places like Vogue Fabrics in Dalston um, and like, also some guardianship scheme houses, so like old gyms and this sort of thing. Uh, so we, we played around with that for about a year. Um, I also went to Berlin for a while and I had a studio there. Um, I did a couple of shows out there as well.
0: Yeah. How how
1: did
0: that come about? Yeah. And uh, how how did you find the experience of making in Berlin compared to London?
1: I think it definitely, for me, it opened up my practice a lot. um, Because I felt that the way they sort of perceived art was very different. Um, There was somehow, there was less of like a guard up about it. Um, I think it was much more of a relaxed atmosphere, so I found myself more engaged with actually like collecting things off the streets, which I never used to do before. Mm. Um, but I really started like picking up objects, like ripping up posters off the walls and like bringing things into the studio. And then that's actually when I really started making work from materials that weren't oil paint and canvas. Because before I was really, really locked into like a very traditional way of making. Mm -hmm. And with the way that I was taught, I was actually told, you know, if you're making a painting, it has to be from life. You're not allowed to use photographs. You know, you have to sit in front of the object. You have to sketch it, do preliminary work, and then you have to paint it. So it took me a really long time to actually break down those barriers and start to use like alternative things like I did... A series of paintings with hair gel, for example, Mm. like hair gel and plastic, um, different like found materials, and they were quite, you know, they were quite garish objects. And I didn't entirely understand them at the time, but I felt that I needed to kind of get out of this funk of making paintings that always felt like they were from the nineteen fifties. And by using different materials, it was kind of like an exit strategy to find a way to communicate with my environment in a in a different way
0: mm. and did that so because you that was in 2015 right and then in 20 yeah. 2016 um you started at the royal college and um yeah, yeah. did you just continue with that kind of vein of thinking when, when you were there what, what was your experience of of all of that
1: oh you mean at the royal college yeah
0: yeah, yeah. so um yeah, so you just found this kind of new way of working in Berlin, or this way of kind of get, moving away from painting. Um, but then obviously you you then got onto a painting course and painting in inverted yeah. commas. Um, but yeah, so how, how did that? Or how did you find that your practice kind of moved moved forward? Um, or how did you find that experience of, of of the RCA with that kind of newfound strategy of making? Yeah.
1: Well, this has actually always been kind of a problem because I feel that there's like two sides that are very different in the practice. And, and like one side is traditional painting oil on canvas, yeah. which I kind of like kept secret at the Royal College for some reason. I just didn't want it to be affected. I felt like this is private. <laughs> and, and, and the other stuff, that was actually why I wanted to go to the RCA in the first place. Because like I, I wasn't intending to actually do an M.A. Um, I went to Berlin and I really wanted to stay there. And I kept going back and forth for you know, a very, very long time. Um, but I realised that I was kind of stuck with like, the materials because they were ephemeral. And, and not only that they were ephemeral, but they sort of had certain connotations that I thought were really kitsch and like tacky that I knew certain people could just never see past that. So I wanted to find ways of making what I was already making, but just sort of like upgrading the materials in a way. I just wanted to find a way for the hair gel to like not evaporate basically. Mm. And so I went to the Royal College and I did continue within that stream. But actually what I learned was that, you know, those materials were actually perfectly fine for what I was doing because they were just describing, like, a different language. And that if I did change them and replace them with, like, you know, glass or, you know, something else, it it would become a completely different object. Mm. So I think for me it was more about trying to understand than, you know, the language of what I was actually making already without changing it too much. Um, But it's still kind of a struggle, because I still have this issue of... The work sometimes having a different sort of settling into a different hierarchy of taste, mm-hmm. because of the work well, because of what they're made out of, and it doesn't really, you know, fit into like the atmospheres of a Sotheby's auction house or something, you know.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it, it's kind of like it's still it's still a bit of a struggle, um, actually, you know, knowing what the materials. I know exactly what the materials are doing and saying, but in order to, but I need to find a way for the spectators to actually be able to, kind of understand them in a different environment. I think, so that's something that that probably needs to develop.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and now I, I guess now um, you, you you would define yourself as like a multidisciplinary artist, right? Um, and I I guess I wanted to ask you, kind of what that means to you and how how now working across disciplines suits you rather than just being a you know a a painter maybe as as you would have been kind of pigeonholed before
1: yeah well i think that word multidisciplinary that's something that's used a lot and that's something i mean i think that's something that i uh, i put out as an excuse in a way but I don't really think that is even like the right word. Mm. And and I don't know exactly what the right word is. Um, Because when you say multidisciplinary, people already imagine like video installation. I don't know, there's a certain kind of image behind it. Mm. Um, So I don't know what the word is. Maybe it hasn't like exactly been created yet. But Mm. I think there is a slight struggle with artists always having to be pigeonholed into a category anyway because I still do consider myself a painter, but I'm not sure for the outside world, you know, how that translates for absolutely everything that I do, because, you know, specifically for like maybe one show, if you only do paintings, then you're definitely a painter, Mm. especially if they're made in a traditional way. But if you're doing something different for another show, then, you know, you're not a painter anymore. You have to sort of label yourself in a different way. So I think that's quite a tricky thing because I don't always agree with this um, idea of like the artist having to sort of, you know, package themselves in order to like market themselves yeah. for a gallery. Um, and and I really do actually believe that, at least at this stage. And it's difficult as years go on because you're getting older. Like you're an adult, you need to market yourself in order to sort of survive and be a success. Mm. But, um, you know, if I remove that, then, you know, that kind of playtime that you have with materials that might lead on to something that's really interesting, it can easily get taken away. And like, I know Duchamp, for example, he's somebody that I always actually look back on, you know, he was an incredible painter, but at some point he did leave that behind and if he he didn't leave it behind forever he always sort of had it in his life but he moved forward by experimenting with different objects and then you know he gave birth to like the ready-made mm. which has changed like art history you know forever yeah so i think it is really important to sort of keep developing even though it is really difficult in most situations you know when you have to present yourself because yeah. it doesn't really it doesn't mean that i don't know who I am, it just means that I'm still trying to be more flexible within those parameters mm. so that I don't pigeonhole myself in a way.
2: Mm. Yeah. But what do, you,
1: what do you think, like as as a painter, you know, because you also made some like sculptures as well.
0: Yeah, you know, yeah, um, I th- I think with painting is uh, what I, I find painting to be just a way of thinking about the world and a way of absorbing the world, really. Um, and that the what you produce, you may think like a painter, but what you produce may not be the traditional paint on canvas. It might be that your way of thinking then translates into various other materials. And although you won't be classed as a traditional painter, um, It does have a footing in that in that way of thinking and the the output is kind of it doesn't really matter to be honest if i mean for a lot of people it does work to work with just images too but but for a lot of people um the the way they engage with the world needs to be a bit more physical and a bit more i don't know something other than that and i think uh, i think kind of painting courses um are do kind of champion champion that um and especially something like the, the rca kind of prides themselves on that I, th- I think too um and i know other institutions do as well that it's kind of treating painting as a way of thinking about the world rather than um the phys- the physical paint on canvas you know
2: yeah
0: mm. um and it's like well yeah talking about kind of m- your materials that you use then really because um, they're quite vast and they're not obviously materials that are usually associated with a with, with an artist's practice and um and quite a lot actually of them interestingly have an association with food or or whatever but I'm thinking of kind of noodles Listerine batter sugar sweets um could you could could you say something about like your relationship to the materials that you use and like what's your attraction to them and um and how they relate to one another
1: yeah. I think all of them have a kind of personal relationship. Um, like some of the paintings that I did do at RCA, they were they were like deep fried in batter. Um, I mean, the way that that came about was initially, I was taking a break from actually like painting Oil on canvas, but I was kind of doing it privately, like within within my own house. Um, And there was a moment where my grandmother had come to visit and she was like, oh, you seem stressed. Like, let's make some fried chicken. Um, And before that, she was actually drawing as well. I was getting her to like draw, you know, like drawings. And they were like children's uh, sketches, really. And they they were really, she went over to like start basically frying chicken. And there was something with that relationship of her being at the table, drawing, and then going over there to start frying food. I started to feel that maybe there could be a kind of relationship because the proximity was you know it was so close. Were, like, the space was small, so they was really close to each other. I felt like maybe there could be some kind of like performance there. Of this like activity of like sketching at the dining room table and then it being like fried so that's kind of initially how i got this sort of inspiration to do it um and initially I wanted it to be hard drawings that were deep fried but i wasn't entirely sure what the connotations would be so i started doing it with different objects and like some, with some of my own paintings
0: Deep um you mean deep frying them, like deep frying the work. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Deep frying them. And I mean it was really interesting like what what happened actually, because if the painting was slightly, slightly wet, or if it was really, really thickly painted, then actually the the tempura would lift off parts of the paint. I mean the the oil of the frying and like the oil of actually like the oil that you use to mix paint, I mean it's almost the same. So I Mm. guess there was something in the material itself that like, created an an attraction or something. But like the texture of them and the actual way that the paint looked under the tempura, I found like really interesting Mm. um, as a material. But then there were also these like different connotations of like taste again, Mm. which was something that I was really kind of looking at and like was actually very concerned about in my practice. Uh, so I, I became like really interested in this, and the idea of taste and I became more comfortable I think using that language mm-hmm. um, because every like consumer decision is backed up, you know, with like educational, educational, financial status. Um, so I think becoming more confident in kind of like, understanding how to use that language and what it means. Mm. Um, was was
0: a really important aspect yeah it's interesting that you, that you talk about kind of status status and um how we consume because obviously these are these are kind of directly relational to the act of kind of deep deep frying one or another because they kind of when when things are kind of deep fried on the surface level it, it kind of levels their, their hierarchy because essentially they are on their surface, made of the same, made of the same stuff, and things that, yeah. and kind of triggers, um, or kind of signs that might, um, kind of trigger us to think in a certain way about those things are kind of removed, so that if you were presented with kind of ten or so objects that were kind of deep fried, the hierarchy of 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 how we would have perceived those objects originally is kind of completely removed. And they're on you know it kind of levels the playing field is one is what I'm trying to say, yeah um, yeah, and ultimately quite interestingly it it all came from the actor of kind of deep frying as well, it came from an act of kind of love and care it, it sounds like, in that you are you know that we we will deep fry this thing um as as a way of kind of yeah showing compassion and empathy um and yeah i I don't know how you feel about that reading but Um, That's definitely something that I I was thinking about when you were explaining that then.
1: Yeah, I think that is actually the most important part of it. Um, But I think because the act of deep frying is also so violent, Mm. you're dipping something into hot boiling oil at like 180 degrees. Um, I also wonder, you know, how that gets lost gets lost in a way. And, and some, some of these things are really difficult when you're trying to sort of convey a message through an object, because there are so many different readings. And unless I specifically had a text related to like the grandmother or had it sort of set up an environment like an old, you know, like an old age pensioner's home or something like this, mm. you know, the story of the grandmother is only like personal to me. But actually, when it's displayed in the world as a painting that's deep fried, it becomes so. Di- it becomes a completely different thing. Mm. Because a lot of the time, I think people have told me they think it's about, you know, the hierarchy of, of painting, and like trying to abolish this. And, you know, that's kind of ridiculous because it might seem like that in some sense, but I don't think that that hierarchy could ever be abolished. and you know, using that word over and over again as well. It just sort of um, gives it less meaning. But I always think that art really has to come from like a personal place in order for you to, in order for your view even like empathize with what you're doing and why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I mean, I do make art for the public, but I think initially it has to start with my own personal experiences
0: first yeah yeah um so i kind of you've said i mean following on from that um you've said that um well i've 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 read that you've said that the work is kind of the aftermath of a reaction to substance and and, and a situation um could you speak about kind of could you talk about the process of kind of m- making the work that you do not not necessarily just the battered work but just the work in general what kind of processes does does, does the work go through or your ideas go through
1: yeah so a lot of the time i kind of react i seem to react to certain smells certain smells or certain like uh places in order to start making a piece of work um the one with the smell particularly actually comes from the the sugar sculptures that was started to be made. Um, So like the smell of sweetness, or like the taste of sweetness. Um, Next to my old studio in Silvertown, um, there was an enormous sugar factory there. Um, And I used to walk past it every single day, because it was on my way there. Um, So I started making sculptures out out of sugar. And it was a kind of relationship that went back to the gel painting strangely. Because when when you base when you cook the sugar, when you boil it down, it becomes almost like gel. It's a very like viscous kind of consistency. And this was something that had always interested me in in all of my work. And I think that could actually be the reason that you know I decided to that I wanted to become a painter because I just really enjoyed like mixing paint and like having this like gooey substance. Um And you can kind of lose yourself in that, I think you know, just in the material- materiality of something, you know just sort of like playing you know this process of playing with it so you know i've always I've always been kind of looking out for other substances that are similarly kind of gel like
2: yeah
1: and sugar sugar is is one of them, so I started casting um sculptures made out of sugar. And again with that, like the the experience of making it was very kind of like sensual in a way because it's not only like sight of a cast sugar cube, it's, you know, the smell of it, like the whole corridor in the studio would actually smell like sugar because you'd have to constantly boil it down and heat it up in order to keep it, you know, supple. Um, it would get stuck everywhere as well. It was just completely like covered and all the door handles and like the floors were sticky. Um, You know, you kind of leave with your hands like sort of encrusted in the stuff. So I kind of always wanted to use materials that I actually found a little bit difficult to control. You know, it kind of like seeps into everything. Mm. And you know, there is this book called What Painting Is by James Elkins, which is, really really amazing actually and and in the first chapter he's talking about like a painter's life and he's saying that you know a painter they they have like you know you start painting and you have like cadmium seeping into your sofa and there's like a bit of you know vermilion in your kitchen and you know suddenly like all the paint starts coming like seeping into your house and you don't even know how it got there
2: yeah and
1: And the same things like happened with all the materials that I was using. It didn't really matter what it was, but a lot of it was about the smell of it.
2: Mm. You know,
1: like the deep fried paintings, they had a really strong sense of like fried smell. And when I showed them in a gallery that like, you could walk, walk in and like, I mean, it was very subtle, but you could smell that like deep fried oil. And like with the sugar stuff, you know, you couldn't smell it if it was already, you know, dried and cast for a long time, but if you were around the studio, you could also like smell the sweetness. Yeah. So yeah. There, there's something about trying to kind of like swap the senses around. Mm. And, and I think that, you know, I think, it, I think it does somehow work, but on a very, very unconscious level, um, I think it does sort of entice people to behave in, in a slightly different way when they encounter the object. And, and that's, that was something that was really important for me because, you know, with painting, like you always have like a little bit of a distance if you're looking at an oil on canvas. You know, there's a distance and you're looking at it, like, it, you know, your mind is more active. Mm. But with. And also,
0: there's a history as well that you, you know, it's hard not to yeah. be conscious of.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. But when the object is made of something else, especially if it's made of some kind of, like, food substance, Mm. it brings you closer to it physically so that you can actually, like, really look at it up close. You know, I had a girl actually come in when I was working late in the studio one night. There was another studio down the road that was, like, having a party. Mm. My friend just sort of, like, brought over some people was like, hey, this is Gala's studio, And, and this girl walked in and she actually started looking at the sculptures and they were just like tower blocks at the time. And she was like, what is this? I was like, oh, this is made of sugar. And she got on her knees and she actually licked the whole sculpture, like bottom to top. <laughs> I mean, they were all a little bit drunk at the time, but I definitely <laughs> thought like this is the most perfect way that I could ever get someone to yeah. look at my work.
0: Yeah, because it's, it's funny you brought up that, that- James Elkin uh chapter in that book because I've been thinking a lot about th- these materials that we're using and sh- sugar it's it's quite um it's, it's quite relatable to the home in to the home in some way in that it's a lot of you know you would consume that kind of thing maybe at home it's quite a comforting thing um and yeah so that that relationship between you only become a painter when the paint starts to seep into your sofa and um in, in, in a sense you become a painter when you bring it home to your place of kind of comfort and in the same way I kind of relate these kind of sugary sweetness things to the home and to comfort too um um and I guess yeah following on from that um how someone like would you encourage that um that reaction to your work in that if someone wanted to kind of physically engage with it and it was enticing enough that people thought they wanted to, you know, it, it might become edible, or it is edible. What would your reaction be to that?
1: I, I think I would definitely encourage that kind of reaction. And and I realise that, you know, the work, because it's been shown in white wall settings, it has been the wrong place. Um, it has been the wrong place for the experience. So I think that, you know, the way that we view things kind of needs to be recategorized anyway, because they have such a, like, tactility about them that, you know, in a gallery setting, it doesn't translate. And I actually had a really strange experience, like, showing some of the sugar pieces last year at um, a place called Mint Gallery. And, it, and it's actually more for, like, design and furniture. Mm-hmm. So they asked me to um, make them into, like, large, Uh, either like tables, or kind of like big boulders that you can sit on. So I made like a collection of them, and because at the time I was completely certain that no other material could be mixed in with this sugar, otherwise it could break, it would make it more fragile, Um, I made them solid, so they're incredibly heavy, they're like 60, 70 kilos each, and they were like, you know, pushed into this gallery, and one other thing I didn't mention was that they they actually leak syrup for almost a year until they're completely dry. Mm-hmm. So it means that they need a lot of maintenance. Like you need to constantly like pick them up and care for them and like you know wipe away the sugar and it's you know it's like having a child.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and you know the gallery got really upset because you know it's a very pristine furniture setting and you know they were constantly oozing syrup. So it was it was kind of like an uncomfortable situation. Like for me, I actually found it really funny. Mm. You know, I thought it was like really <laughs> humorous that these like objects had a life of their own and it made me understand them, you know, that much more um, to, to actually see how they behave in the outside world. And they can still be used, you know, as functional objects. Like they, they definitely could, but then they would be missing this other you know factor of the fact that they're constantly oozing and like wetting themselves
2: Mm.
1: and and i find that i find that really interesting in a way i think it's like a different adds a different dimension to it which which actually means that maybe they can't just be still situated objects in a space Mm. maybe they need to kind of have a system where they are allowed to kind of leak out
0: How how would have you thought about how you might want like the perfect scenario for you for showing these of showing these kind of sculptures? Could you could you imagine a yeah? yeah could you imagine a, s- a scenario that would be you know that you think would be perfect for them?
1: I think if if there was a way, the only reason actually that I stopped um, making them, you know, a couple of months ago was because it was because of this fact that I couldn't control how much they leaked out because they actually have to dry. Mm. Um, I I spoke to someone about this who actually has like extreme knowledge of sugar. And he was saying that even in in sugar refineries, what they do is actually, they do wash it out and they have, you know, turbo dryers that can dry it out. Mm. Um, and I don't have any turbo dryers. So it just has to (laughs) sort of happen, uh, naturally it has to evaporate. Mm. But I think if there was an environment where they were, you know, allowed to leak out and maybe in a way kind of, you know, destroy themselves in this way, like if it's a very humid space, um, that's the only thing that can actually attack this sculpture is, is humidity, like mm. bacteria can't grow there, it's too saturated. Um, they're completely rock hard as well, like almost as like as hard as marble. Mm. So the only thing that actually attacks them is humidity. So if there was a situation where they could you know, kind of leak out mm. and kind of absorb like the wet space. I think that that would be an interesting experiment.
0: Because mm. mm. recently, as well, um, one of your kind of recent projects that I've that I've seen is because kind of culminated, culminated in a cast of Sir Henry Tate made out of sugar. Um yeah. <laughs> What was the um, What was the background uh, to that project? And kind of yeah, why why did that all happen?
1: so that that happened um, in Silvertown, uh, so I had a studio there, um, and it's actually an area that was really well known for sugar, so it houses one of uh, Henry Tate's factories, and they were very, very close to me, and I would constantly harass them you know for a sack of sugar for for months and months on end until I finally actually got through to someone um, that would be willing to initially I wanted them to sort of communicate with me, let me see the factory, maybe sponsor a project. Um, but I got in touch with someone from the PR there who came who came to the studio, he was really interested in the sculptures and told me that actually it was going to be Sir Henry Tate's um, birthday anniversary mm. and that the BBC were going to possibly film something. So they, they actually got in touch with me and uh, they, they wanted to, put a sculpture into their documentary. Um and because it was his, you know, Sir Henry Tate's birthday, we we made, you know, we made we recreated his bust. Oh, wow. And it was really exciting. Like it was it was an incredible experience because I'd waited for such a long time to get into that factory that mm. it really felt like, you know, I I'd kind of like made my own dreams come true in a way. Mm. And you know, it was great to have like the BBC on board as well that were interested in actually, you know, helping supply materials to get it made. Um, but it was just a really nice, like kind of friendly process. Actually, I really felt like they kind of welcomed me in, into a family. Mm. Um, and so I've done like a couple of open days there as well, where I've actually spoken to like the factory workers. Um, and you know, it's been, it's been a really, really interesting experience.
0: Are you going to get to work with them more?
1: Possibly. There was, I mean, we were meant to maybe do something in September, um, but it didn't actually go through because I think they have some, like, financial constraints, believe it or not. Mm.
2: Um,
1: So they they have a lot of things to sort of organise, I think, for themselves first, because they have an incredible archive. Mm. Actually, they've been collecting information about sugar and about Tate and Lyle, um, you know, since like the 1880s. Mm.
2: So
1: they really do have something interesting there, loads of books, loads of like, uh, you know, sugar packets and things that Henry Tate collected. Um, and, and that's actually where the sculpture is at the moment. It's in their museum archives. So I'm really happy that he, ha- he actually has a home
0: oh, um, to go to. And it's and is that is that fully dried out? And is that, you know, that isn't melting? <laughs> is it?
1: No, it's not. I think it's, I
0: think it's completely fine, that one. Oh, great. That's, that's good. I'm um, kind of moving away from sugar for a bit, maybe. Um, most recently that you've been, you've been painting in, right? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could you, um, could you speak a little bit about, about those and kind of what, um, what kind of prompted you to start, yeah, to start painting again?
1: I think I, I honestly just missed it. I just missed I just missed painting and just mixing colors. Mm-hmm. Um, because I kind of starved myself of that experience at the Royal College. Yeah. you know, kind of like everything got so busy with other, other things that I didn't really, because I know that it takes me a couple of months to finish a painting. And I needed that kind of luxury of just being able to spend like two months on one piece of work so when you look at them like they, they do have a very kind of complex network um because each mark is is like one unique thing mm. and it's not always erased sometimes it stay there sometimes you know you do get layers kind of interrupting it but you know it's a series of like networks mm. i think of various different colors like they don't have a constrained palette at the moment even though you know towards the end you can kind of like see what it is but i started keeping like a painting diary now and it really really helps and it's just on like rag paper so like a leather bound book with loads of rag paper mm. and every time i like mix different colors i actually put it down in the book and i write down what they are
0: kind of like a recipe
1: yeah kind of like a recipe and it really helps actually to sort of like look back on like you know specific days um and understand like what I've been using and like how I'd mixed it you know what what really went into it like you you know you can tell, tell a lot about yourself just about the way that you put down the paint even in that little book but it also makes the colors clearer Because before, I would kind of get like, you know, the the palette can get a little bit muddy and a bit confused. But with this diary thing, because I probably only use like three colours, maybe max, mixed into it, just Mm. in in different quantities. I know that when I'm putting it on the canvas, like it's, you know, it's a confirmed decision. And it didn't happen by accident. I didn't just like accidentally make this color and accidentally put it on like this. Like, I find, I find it really comforting to know that, you know, i really made like that decision. Mm. So I think a lot of the paintings, like what they are is, you know, it's colors, it's colors and marks, really. Mm. Um, but some of them, but they're all slightly different. You know, some of them feel a bit more like Cecily Brown. Some of them feel like kind of like a futuristic kind of vortex painting. Mm. Um, and I'm quite, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay that with the fact that they're different. But yeah. some of them are more and more, I think, having relationships with kind of like medieval like manuscripts and like the Book of Hours. I find quite interesting because, you know, these manuscripts, they're called the Book of Hours because it's spent you know these guys spent hours and hours and hours making painting these manuscripts so they do have like certain like geometric interventions within the marks and somehow you know after a month they will find their place. but for some reason I can only get to that stage if i spend like a month on it mm. and mm. it doesn't happen before like even if i was to plan it out i have a lot of like sketches in um just on like graph paper where I literally just color in the little squares. And, you know, I do those and it's a plan. But I kind of just chuck it because I just feel like, okay, that graph drawing thing is just a work in itself, but I can't translate that into a painting. I just don't believe that there can be a preliminary sketch for a painting.
0: Mm. So they're very kind of intuitively made, it sounds like, right? Um, yeah,
1: they, are. they and... are. There, there are some elements that are, that have like figurative things initially. Like mm. this thing that I have here, you can see maybe. So this used to be my mum's old uh, history of art book, and it's just tiny black and white um, drawings. Not drawings. Sorry. Um, like works of art, like photocopies. Mm. And because they're black and white, a lot of them are very geometric. And you can just get the tones really, really simply. And so I kind of use some of those forms like within it, and they start so that I feel it has some kind of figurative rooting. It really matter in the end how it started, because in the end it is an abstract painting.
2: Mm.
1: So mm. that—that's kind of that. I mean, that's sort of what I struggle with talking about. Actually, like, how abstract does your language need to be in order to? Talk about you know what, what you're looking at on the canvas. Mm.
0: Mm. Do you do you find it hard explaining, and uh, not explaining, but kind of do you find it hard talking about painting, talking about your paintings? Do you find it difficult?
1: Yeah, I do. I, th- I do find it really difficult, actually. I definitely do because I feel like that there can't just be like one truth to it. Um, because I think the most important thing that you want to do, like, as, as an artist is, is to make sure that there's, you know, meaning in your work. And I think if you're so hell-bent on, you know, creating meaning that, you know, sometimes trying to put meaning into something makes it completely meaningless. And so I found it really difficult to justify exactly why I want to use certain images. Because, you know, if I'm doing something figurative to start with, just to sort of get a crux or like some kind of mapping on the canvas, Mm. um, why am I then abstracting it? If you know what I mean, it's like, is it to create, you know, a series of patterns and, and colors and like, what does that really mean? You know, so I find that actually having it really completely blank and completely intuitive, for painting is really what I want it to be, um, because otherwise I feel like I'm kind of making this like advertisement, advertisement of of a, like an idea. Mm, yeah. I don't know how to explain
0: it. No, that's that's a good explanation. Yeah. That's a good explanation. Um, I think when I, I think that's a that's probably a concern or. A view that shared um, with many painters, or a problem that shared at least, is how to how to begin. Um, and I think a, a lot of the time, it's just the act of beginning is enough, um, and that you uh, the painting kind of it's it's an age-old thing. And I know that people kind of struggle with um, allowing themselves to. St- to to say this but sometimes it is just maybe just the physical joy of making that is the reason for the work and that can be fine or maybe it's an exploration of a certain colour or maybe it's just because you wanted to make a painting and that's okay um so I think yeah your reasons are just as valid as any others I think um
1: yeah, it's a tricky one it's a tricky one isn't it, it because is. i think at some point every painter has this experience of you know just like the pure flow of you know baking the work mm. that you know i'm sure that at certain points the subjects you know lose like not loses value to them of course it's important but it's sort of the enjoyment of making yeah i think is that really is that really enough to spend all this time just like enjoying this luxury of making if what you're putting out doesn't have a very concrete message
0: Mm. but then i think perhaps sometimes things aren't given to us to understand and maybe what what you create is there just to say well you decide you know it's i yes i've made it but um maybe yeah maybe the interest is is in that kind of question and the, i don't know this is what's created and just yeah you can decide whatever you like really and yeah. that's okay
1: yeah i think i think that is actually important because i mean in order for ideas to progress people have to sort of let go of um you know formulas and frames that, that already exist mm you know, in order for things to develop. Otherwise you can become a complete prisoner to, to those ideas. And like, there's actually really good um, talk that Nicholas Boryard did, and it's the Nasher uh, keynote speaker, the Nasher Prize. Mm. And he's talking about like Hippias and Plato. So Plato basically asks Hippias like what he thinks beauty is. And he replies saying, oh, oh, I think beauty is a pretty girl. And Plato obviously thinks that like, oh, this guy's a moron. Like, you know, he's not talking about harmony or form or like the ideals or any of this. Um, but actually what, like Nicholas Boread is saying, his interpretation of it is really interesting because he's saying, you no, know, like Hippias is saying that, you know, beauty is an accident. It's like this phenomenon that like crosses my path. And that actually for anyone who thinks it is anything else, like can become such a prisoner to this idea that beauty is this like ideal conception. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, he does a lot to sort of try and like re categorize the way that we view work. Like he's a, he's a curator. So, you know, he does a lot of work with like Pierre Huey who, Creates these like networks and environments, you know. Sometimes using like bees and insects and aquariums, and like creates performances and videos. So they're very like immersive. And I, I mean, I agree with like some of his his ideas a lot. I think, um, and and I and I do see it like that. You know that you know beauty can be this kind of phenomenon and accident.
0: Um, well, I guess now would be I guess unfortunately um we're kind of nearing the end of our chat um but as you may or may not know towards the end of of all our chats that we have with our guests um we ask them a series of questions at the end um and the, the first of them is uh if you could um swap seats with me um and visit any person um either living or dead um who who would you visit and what might you like to ask them
1: that is, that is actually such a tough one. I spent ages thinking about it. <laughs> but I think that who I'd most like to visit is Alejandro Jodrowalski. And he's this like French Chilean filmmaker. I don't know if you've seen any of his stuff, but he did uh, The Holy Mountain and El Topo.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and yeah.
1: They, oh, yeah, they're amazing. They're the most ludicrous films I've had ever seen, honestly. <laughs> but I think I'd like to sort of be with him when he's uh you know drawing out a sketch for one of his films because he does all of like his own drawings at first and because he uses so much like sculpture as well um i think i'd really like to sort of just be with him in the room while he's like creating all of this stuff
0: mm. that's a really good answer i actually listened to a podcast of with him on it the other day actually i think uh, I'll, I'll put it in the notes um for this podcast yeah. but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's BBC Arts and Ideas podcast um and yeah he um they have a phone call with him towards the end of that episode um and uh, yeah it's uh, he's he is quite he's quite the man isn't he he's quite yeah man. he is <laughs> 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 yeah, um he's and right <laughs> and the the second question is um has there been a piece of advice that uh, that you've been given or something that someone said to you um that's kind of carried through with you and in, in your work
1: i think it, it's for me it's not so much what somebody has said um but it's more about sort of watching a particular person work uh so i met this artist his name's terry jones over the summer who I just think is an incredible person um so he's actually retired Uh, teacher from the Slade. He used to be head of sculpture at Slade and he's retired now but I did uh, like a bronze casting course that he led and he was just incredible, just like watching him enjoy like everything that he did, like take his time, move slowly, like be really like in tune with what he was doing. It actually made him a much better communicator it's difficult to like put into words because I was there kind of just like watching him. But Mm. I think, you know, sort of just not working with anxiety and just, just like enjoying and like being slow and like savouring thinking and like doing, I think is really important to Mm. just, you know, keep, keep this going for the next thousand years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think that relates quite closely to how you talked about how you experienced the process of, making paintings too and it and and it sounds like maybe the end point of a painting isn't really particularly important for you and maybe it's just the enjoyment of the process of making is where interest might lie or where you find kind of you know your enjoyment or your wonder with you know with with art maybe um well yes um but is there okay is there anything you'd like to let people know about are you up to anything you've got anything coming up um or is there anything anywhere or any place you'd like to let people know about
1: yeah I mean, at the moment i've actually um, i'm going to be making a music video for the fontanas um, and they're like a brazilian ska funk band, um so we're going to be working on making a music video for them the next couple of weeks um, and all of the proceeds are going to go to charity. They're actually going to give donate everything to the NHS. Oh, fantastic. Um, so it's for a really good cause. Mm. And so I'll let, let everyone know when it's out.
0: Yeah, well done you. Um, where should people... Where, you, where would you be posting that? Would it be on your Instagram or would it be on a website?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll post it on Instagram. Um, okay. They're called the Fontanas. How? So I'll, I'll
0: definitely put it up. Cool. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um what's your what's your handle? And um, what what is theirs?
1: So my handle is gala bell with three L's. And theirs is just the Fontanas. so F O N T A N A S.
0: Sweet. Okay. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to watching that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, awesome that kind of concludes our time, Gala. Really? Um,
1: Yeah, thank
0: you so much for having me on Yeah, thank you for agreeing to come on Um, Yeah, I've really enjoyed that, thank you Well, thank you very much for listening Please find more information about what was discussed in the podcast in the notes section And if you like what you heard and would like to keep up to date with new episodes, um, then please subscribe or follow us depending on which listening platform you use. And head over to our Instagram page at To The Studio, which we regularly update with posts about each guest we have and all other goings on as well. To The Studio is produced by the Audio Wizard, an all round great guy that is Theo Bird. And I would thoroughly recommend getting in touch with him for all your audio needs. On Instagram, he is bird person. Bird is spelled B-Y-R-D person. Also, if you can spare a moment to leave us a lovely review, that would help us out a lot and it allows us to reach a few more ears than we are currently. And lastly, if you've got any suggestions or opinions you wish to share with us, then please feel free to do so on any of our social media platforms or send us over an email. Our details are again in um, the notes section uh, of each episode of the podcast well thanks very much again for listening and we'll see you next time